Hi, this is Bob Bro, and welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. We're doing another show from our archives this week. The show you're about to listen to was first broadcast on February the 1st, back in 2016. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. see ya. Welcome, welcome on board. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the old-time radio show where we feature shows that we remember from when we were kids because we're baby boomers. Maybe we didn't hear them on radio. Maybe we remember them from television because many of these shows uh, were done both on radio and television. But nonetheless, we remember them, and tonight is no different. We have an episode tonight of um, Dragnet. <laughs> which we all loved when we were kids. We're going to follow that up with a very, very funny episode of the Bickersons with Donna Michi and Francis Lankford. And then we're going to end up on the streets of Dodge City, Kansas with a 1958 episode of Gunsmoke. We're going to venture out into the uh, uh, more modern episodes. Uh, mostly what we've been featuring is uh, from 1955 and, and prior uh, so tonight we have an episode from 58, and it's a really good one. Got a great lineup. I'm so glad you all made it. Uh, Chester has got all the shows queued up and ready to go. And we're going to get started in just a minute. Well, to get things started off this week, we are going to visit Sergeant Joe Friday of the Los Angeles Police Department. And this week, he's working in homicide on an episode of Dragnet. But before we do that, we have to set the scene with the great 
dragnet theme, which is actually a march. In fact, you're going to do it anyway, so why not? Why don't we all start in unison? Everybody stand up. Come on, everybody up. Stand up. Stand up out there, Colorado. Up, New Jersey. And get ready to march, okay? And then here comes the music, and we will march in step. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Keep marching. Keep marching. Chester marched, marched clear out the door. Oh, okay. Well, for tonight's episode of Dragnet, we're going back to September the 4th, 1952, for a show that was first heard on NBC. And it's entitled The Big Test. I think it's a unique episode. The whole thing is just dialogue between three people. It never leaves the room that they're in. And yet, I think you'll find this totally captivating. I I don't think you're going to get bored for one second as you listen to this episode that's entitled The Big Test. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a homicide detail. A young man walks into your office and tells you that his best friend has been killed by unknown assailants. Your job? Investigate. Dragnet. The 
documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Monday, August 9th. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Warman. My name's Friday. It was 7.58 a.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. That you, Frank? Yeah, morning, Joe. Looks like it's gonna be a scorcher today, doesn't it? Yeah, nice and clear. How'd the weekend go? Lousy. Why, what do you mean? Oh, Faye and me had a ruckus Saturday night. Was that so? Yeah, happens every time we have somebody over for dinner. Never fails. Yeah. And she gets a yakking it up with the company. We never eat till 10, 10.30. It's a miserable time for dinner. Yeah, it's pretty late at that. Saturday night, we had the Johnsons over. Gonna play a little cards, have a little dinner. You know, relax. Mm -hmm. Wife fixed Swedish meatballs. They're on the stove. Everything's dandy. She gets to talking. We finally sit down to eat. It's 10.15. Meatballs are burned. Yeah. By that time, we're all so hungry, we lost our appetite. It was real embarrassing, Joe. We finally sat down. I figured let Faye know I was pretty sore. But I didn't want to come right out and tell her in front of the Johnsons, you know. Yeah, I can understand. So I picked up one of the meatballs that was burned, said she'd invented something new. Everybody else used chlorophyll for their teeth, but we had built-in charcoal. Yeah, what'd she say? Nothing. She just looked. Hasn't said a word to me since. Sends the kids with messages for me. It's pretty miserable. Uh, she'll probably be over when you get home tonight. Pardon me. Yes, sir? Is the homicide department where you report a murder? Yes, sir, that's right. You the fellas I talked to about a murder? Yes, sir. Come on in. Sit down. Take that chair over there. Thought I'd never make it. Are you all right? Yeah, now that I'm here, it's all right. Your face pretty badly cut there. Those bruises, scratches on your throat. You sure you're all right now? Yeah, yeah, I'm all right. I never thought I'd get here. Times I was ready to quit, but then I'd think of Kevin. What they did to him, and I, I had to keep walking. I had to. For Kevin, I had to. Well, everything's all right now. You can tell us about it. I don't know where to start. What's your name, young fella? Bruce Hamilton. All right, Bruce. I'm Joe Friday. This is my partner, Frank Smith. Hello, Bruce. Hello. Well, we know that you must have been through a terrible ordeal, but you can tell us about it. It's all right. What day is today? It's Monday the 9th. Monday. Then it was Saturday night. Just two days. Seems like ten years. We just finished dinner. Sitting around the fire having coffee, trying to figure out whose turn it was to do the dishes. Then we heard them. You heard them? Who's that? Horsemen. Lots of them. They rode right into the camp. One of them yelled something. They all stopped. Stood there looking at us. We didn't know what to do, who they were. We just stood there. Then this big guy, I, I guess he was the leader, said something to us in Spanish. We couldn't understand him. All right, go ahead. You see, Kevin and I go to school together. Summer vacation, we decided to go down to Mexico and do a little prospecting. That's the reason we were there. Mm-hmm. Go on. Well, we just stood there and looked at him. Big guy said something else, and then they all laughed. Then he got off his horse and came over to Kevin and me. He was a big man. When we tried to tell him that we didn't know what he was saying, he laughed and turned to the other men, and they laughed, too. Big guy said something else to him, and they all got off their horses and started to go through our things. Kevin told him not to and started to walk over to him to stop him. The leader hit Kevin and knocked him down. The men laughed at him and Kevin got up and ran toward one of them. Kevin started to hit him. I broke away from the one that was holding me and ran to help Kevin. The big guy grabbed me and hit me in the face, knocked me down, started to kick me. I heard a shot. 
When I looked where Kevin was, he was all doubled up, holding his stomach. He hollered at me to help him. Then the guy shot him again. He fell down, didn't move. They all laughed, thought it was a big joke. I got up, one of them shot at me. I started running. I ran as fast as I could, he kept shooting. Thought sure they'd hit me and I kind of waited for it. Then I ran through some bushes and I fell into this gully. Mm-hmm. And at the bottom I just lay there and didn't move, almost afraid to breathe. Guess they thought they'd kill me. I see. What happened then? I waited until I couldn't hear him anymore and then I crawled up out of the gully to see if they were gone. I wanted to help Kevin. I didn't see anybody, so I walked over to where he was. He was laying on his face. You got no idea how I felt when I turned him over. Mm-hmm. All right, we understand. Go ahead. I knew right away he was dead. It shot him in the stomach and in the chest. Shirt was all stained. There was nothing I could do for him. Nothing anybody could do. I looked at him for a long time. I guess I cried. It was terrible. Kevin was dead, and there's nothing I could do for him. I see. What'd you do then? I buried Kevin. I looked for something to dig the grave with, but they'd taken everything, even the shovels, everything. I found a place under a tree and dug a grave with my hands. Then I went back and got Kevin. Laid him in the grave I dug and covered him up. Said a prayer for him. I did the best I could for him. Best I could. All right, son, try to take it easy. Frank, let's get him some water. I'll take him down to the interrogation room, all right? All right, Bruce, maybe you'd like to go down the hall to another room. It's a little more quiet down there, huh? Yeah. Sorry. Crying like a kid, I... Guess you think it's silly, but I can't help it. That's all right, Bruce. We know how you feel. Nobody gets too old to cry. Go ahead. No, it's down this way. Okay. So tired. I'm glad to get this over with. Sure. All right, here we are. Go ahead, Bruce. You want to sit down? Thanks. Here's a glass of water, Bruce. Thanks. Good. Helps. All right. Now, is there any more you want to tell us? Well, there's a little more. There was nothing I could do. I, I looked around. They'd taken everything. Dishes, food, supplies, clothes. I went over to the mesquite bushes where we'd hidden our duffel bag. We kept all our money and papers in there. Wallets, identification, all our valuables. But they'd found that. It was gone. They hadn't left anything. Well, they took everything. Didn't leave a thing, huh? Not a thing. What'd you do then? Started a walk. We parked our car just off the highway. It was about five miles. When I got to where we'd park it, the car was gone. I didn't know what to do. What could I do? All right. I started to walk to Ensenada to tell the police. Then I began to think that the bandits had taken my wallet. I didn't have any identification, no way to prove who I was. Couldn't even speak the language. Got scared that they might not believe me. Now you walked all the way from Ensenada to the American border, is that it? That's right. I walked all Saturday night, and Sunday morning I found an old adobe house, and I crawled through a window and slept. I don't know how long I was asleep, but it was dark when I woke up. I started to walk again. I walked all Sunday night, too. When I got to the border, I was afraid to go through the gate, so I went down by the riverbed and found a hole in the fence. I crawled through and went over the American side. 
When I got there, I felt better, safe. I figured that I'd go up to the first policeman I saw and tell him what happened. Did you notify the authorities down in San Diego? No, I, I got to the police station, but I didn't go in. I didn't tell them. Why not? Like I said, I didn't have any way to prove who I was. I had no money. My wallet was gone. My clothes were all torn. Face was all cut. I, I thought it'd be better if I could get to Kevin's mother. If I could see her and talk to her, she'd know what to do. I hitched a ride. I, I wanted to go to San Francisco. Truck driver brought me this far. While we were driving, I thought more and more about what I'd say to Kevin's mother, how I'd tell her he was dead. Then I knew I couldn't do it. But I had to tell somebody. That's why I came to see you. Now, Bruce, we're going to have to go back down to Mexico. You'll be able to show us where the body is, won't you? Well, if I have to go, I guess I can. But I can tell you exactly where it was. I, I can give you a map, tell you right where he's buried. Do you want to give us that information now? Yeah. It was south of Ensenada, 40 miles down the new paved highway. South of Ensenada, 40 miles. You sure it was 40 miles? Yeah. While we were driving, Kevin and I kept trying to figure out how many kilometers to a mile. I kept watching the speedometer. It was just 40 miles when we turned off the paved highway onto a little dirt road. 40 miles? Yeah. There's a clump of trees near there in the gully. You can't miss it. I see. Can you give us the description of the car, the license number? Well, I don't remember the license number, but the car was a 51 Ford sedan, dark blue. The car belonged to Kevin. I, I never paid any attention to the license. Mm-hmm. That's K-E-V-I-N, Kevin, huh? Yeah. Now we can check that through DMV. What was Kevin's full name and address? Kevin Allen Bradley. He lived at 6502 Washington Street, San Francisco. He lived with his mother, apartment on Knob Hill. Mm -hmm. Would you give us a description of Kevin? Well, he's about my size, generally. 5'10", 140 pounds, blue eyes. His hair's light, kind of blonde like mine, 22 years old. We looked a lot alike. Kids at school used to think we were brothers sometimes. I see. Joe, we better get a communication to the Mexican authorities, fill them in on the whole thing. Yeah. Tell them we're coming down. Yeah. Contact San Francisco and let them handle that end of the thing. Mm-hmm. Get a teletype off the DMV in Sacramento, get a license number on the car. And we better contact the San Diego PD and get a hold of Al Gate and fill him in on the thing. Yeah, that's a good idea. I'll stay here with Bruce. You want to take care of that? Uh-huh. Now, look, young fellow, would you know these bandits again if you saw them? Well, I, I might not know some of them, but the big guy and the one that shot Kevin, I'll never forget them. The big guy was tall, heavy, over six feet, well over 200 pounds. I'll never forget him. That laugh when they killed Kevin. When he laughed, you could see he had two gold teeth right here in front. These here. Two gold teeth, huh? Yeah. Now, how about the other man, Bruce? Did you get a good look at him? He was a small man, dark like the leader. He, he wasn't wearing a hat. Real thin face. His clothes were all dirty, and his pants were torn around the bottoms. He was wearing those leather sandals, the open kind. His feet were filthy like he hadn't had a bath in a year. You think you'd be able to identify any of the others? Well, I don't know. Maybe if I saw him. I was scared, and I don't mind admitting. Joe? Yeah, Frank. I stopped by R&I before I went on with the other communications. Checked the name Kevin Allen Bradley through. Yeah. There's a teletype from San Francisco, dated July 13th. It's a missing person report on Kevin. You want to read it? Mm, what's it say? Regular missing report? Well, it's described as male, white, American, 22 years, 5'10", 140 pounds, blonde, blue eyes, fair complexion. The time of disappearance was wearing a dark blue gabardine suit. Driving a dark blue 1951 Ford, license number 1, Robert 2951. Something else, Joe? Mm-hmm. He was known to be carrying a sum of money in excess of $1,500 when he disappeared. 
$1,500 is a lot of money in that. Oh, not to Kevin. He was used to carrying that kind of money. You see, his folks were pretty rich. He, he always had all the money he wanted. Oh, I see. Well, how about this missing report here, Bruce? What do you mean? Well, didn't Kevin's mother know that he was going to Mexico? Well, no. You see, they had an argument about where he was going to spend his summer vacation. She wanted him to go to Canada, and he wanted to come down here. One afternoon, we just took off. Kevin went to the bank and got the money, and we just took off. I see. He didn't tell his mother anything about it? No, he thought that she'd try to stop him. Probably would have, too, if she'd known. Oh, was uh, the money among the things that were stolen from you? Well, yeah. It was in Kevin's wallet in the duffel bag. Mm-hmm. I suppose it was kind of foolish to leave that much money just laying around, but we did. We didn't think that anything had happened like this. I stop and think back over it. Kevin being dead, I, I don't know, I just get sick. Now, you say you didn't have any money. How did you get along? I didn't think much about food. The important thing was to tell somebody about Kevin's being killed. That's all I thought about, telling somebody. Yeah, sure. Well, you must be pretty hungry then. You'd like something to eat now, would you? Yeah, it might taste pretty good. Sandwich and some coffee. How about you guys? You gonna eat? Frank, how about you? Yeah, after I get communications off, I'll run across the street and pick up some sandwiches and coffee and bring them back here. All right, fine. What, what kind of sandwich you like, Bruce? Oh, anything. Doesn't make any difference. Joe? Oh, ham's all right. White bread, a lot of mustard. You know. Okay, I'll be right back. Right. Oh, say, Joe, hmm. I'm running kind of low on my allowance. I only got a buck and a half. You got a little change? Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, here, let me get this. What's that? Huh? Did you say you had some money? Well, I have got $10. $10 bill. Maybe I'm wrong, but I thought you said the bandits took all your money. Did I get it wrong? Well, what I meant is I, I didn't think I had any money. I, I found this tent in my pocket just before I walked in here. Oh, I see, yeah. Look, you can see it's all wadded up. It must have been in my pocket for a long time. Just a tent all wadded up. Yeah, it's all crumpled up there. You can hardly tell what it is, can you? Yeah, that's right. But you can see it's a tent. Mm-hmm. Sure. It's all wrinkled up. You can see how I missed it. Yeah. I'll tell you, why don't you put everything in your pockets right here on the table, huh? Why? What'll that show? All right, come on, boy. I haven't got anything in my pockets. Well, you found the ten. Maybe you'll find something else. All right, but I don't know what it's going to show. Pocket knife, handkerchief, comb. You got the ten on the table there. That's all. Maybe there's something in your coat pocket. No, I don't carry anything in my coat pockets. Stretches them. Well, you take a look anyway, huh? I told you I don't use them. See? Nothing. How about the inside pocket? No. There's nothing there. Let's have a look, huh? I told you there's nothing there. Then you won't mind if we have a look. What's that you got there, Bruce? That's my wallet. Guess they didn't take it after all. Gee, thanks for finding it. You know, I probably wouldn't have thought to look for it. I just figured that it was gone. Here, let me have it. Let's see what's in it, huh? Well, just some cards, personal stuff like that. Nothing you'd be interested in. I, I forgot all about it. I feel pretty silly. I didn't even know it was there. Take a look, mm-hmm. Joe. You say this is your wallet, is that right, Bruce? Yeah, it's mine. I, I told you it's mine. How about let me have it, huh? There's quite a bit of money in here, Bruce. Huh? I don't know. Just a glance here. Looks to be about $1,000, doesn't it? Well, just a minute. I, I think I can explain that. Well, there's another thing here I don't think you can explain. What's that? The name in the wallet. Kevin Bradley. finding of Kevin Bradley's wallet, the case had taken a new turn. We continued to question Bruce Hamilton, but he insisted that he thought the wallet and the money had been taken by the bandits when they killed the Bradley boy. 
While I talked to him, Frank went down the hall and contacted the Mexican authorities and gave them the information. He gave them the description of Kevin Bradley and of Bruce Hamilton. They told him that to the best of their knowledge, there were no bandits operating in the vicinity, but they would dispatch a search party to go over the area. They said they would keep us advised of any developments that might arise. Frank also contacted the San Francisco Police Department and gave them the information. They said they'd take care of that end of the investigation. 11.47 a.m. Frank came back to the interrogation room and we continued to question the Hamilton boy. I told you all I know. I don't know how the money got there. I was as surprised as you were. I, I don't understand it. You gotta believe me. Yeah, well, you're making it pretty tough to believe, Bruce. It's kind of hard to buy the fact that over $1,000 in Kevin's wallet turns up in your pocket and you don't know how it got there. But it's the truth. I don't know how I can convince you that it's the truth. Well, there are a couple of other things that aren't clear here. What? Tell me. I'm not lying. I've got nothing to hide. What's not right? Tell me. Well, this business of not telling the authorities. I told you. I was scared that they might not believe me. You can understand that, can't you? Well, maybe up to a point. I thought that if I could get to Kevin's mother, then she could take care of it. I didn't know what else to do. Then when I got to L.A., I had a chance to think about it, and I couldn't go through with it. I couldn't tell his mother. I couldn't face her. Bruce, when you described where we could find the body, you said it was about 40 miles down the paved highway, that right? That's what I said. Well, how long has it been since you've been to Mexico? Well, I told you, I just came back from there. Don't you believe anything I've told you? Well, Joe and I just finished an investigation down in Mexico. Investigation took us about 70 miles south of Ensenada. We found the highway paved for only about five miles south. You say 40 miles. How do you explain the difference? Well, maybe I was wrong about the distance. Well, you're pretty sure when you first told us about it. Well, maybe I made a mistake. There's something else, Bruce. It's a little hazy here. I told you I want to help anything. How far south of Ensenada did you say you were? I said about 40 miles. Now I'm not sure. But you are sure that it was south of Ensenada? Well, yeah. And Kevin was killed on a Saturday night. That's right. And you started for the States right away. Well, that's what I said. I started walking as soon as I found the car was gone. And you walked all the way to the border? Well, that's right. How'd you walk? What route'd you take? I told you, I stayed off the road. I was afraid of the bandits coming back. I, I walked along the roadside and then through the hills. I got off the roadside whenever I saw anybody coming. But you did walk all the way? Yeah, that's right. All the way from Ensenada to the border. And it took you how long? Well, Saturday night and Sunday night. I got a ride in San Diego in the morning. What time do you figure that you started for the border? Maybe 11.30, midnight. I don't know for sure. And you stopped at dawn? Well, yeah, I stopped and slept. Then I woke up and I started a walk. And you're asking us to believe that you walked over 100 miles in less than 14 hours. Is that right? Yeah. Through country like that? What do you think? That I'm making the whole thing up? Look at my face, my back. Here, look. Does this look like my imagination? You could have gotten these in a fight with Kevin. Maybe he didn't want you to take the money. You keep talking about the money. I try to tell you I don't know how the money got in my pocket. I don't know anything about it. You think I killed Kevin, is that right? Yeah, it looks that way, doesn't it? But he was my best friend. I had no reason to kill him. He was my friend. Now, look, son, we better get this thing straight for you. You've opened up a can of beans here. You waltz in here and give us a cock and bull story about this killing. Parts of your story we can't buy. Why are you trying to sell it to us? You lied about the road. You lied about the money. The story about how you walk doesn't ring true. You want to know what I really think, Bruce? I think the whole thing's a lie from start to finish. A lie. Now, let's come off it. Who killed Kevin Bradley? I don't know. I don't know. Now, get this straight, Bruce. Did you kill him? Huh? Did you kill Kevin Bradley? Is that the reason for this story? No, no, I didn't. Well, somebody did. Can you tell us who? You're getting me all mixed up. You're the one that's getting it mixed up, Bruce. We just want to know who killed Kevin Bradley. We think maybe it was you. Looks like it might have been. No, no, it couldn't be. Leave me alone. I, I didn't do it. Why couldn't you have done it? Looks like you did. Because Kevin Bradley isn't dead. What's that? He was never killed. I'm Kevin Bradley. broke down completely and admitted that the whole thing was a hoax. He said he hadn't been in Mexico at all, but that he'd spent the past week in a downtown hotel working out the story that he planned to tell us. He admitted that the wounds were self-inflicted. 
He explained that he had scratched his own face and hit himself with a rock to produce the cuts and bruises. He went on to say that he had picked Mexico as the scene of the false killing because he thought the story would be more difficult to trace. Like many citizens, he was unaware of the close cooperation between American law enforcement agencies and the Mexican authorities. We asked him about the existence of a Bruce Hamilton, and he told us there was such a boy in his class at school. 12.50 p.m. The communication had come through from San Francisco, and the teletype said that Mrs. Bradley was en route to Los Angeles to aid in the investigation. When we told Kevin about this, he lapsed into silence and for another hour refused to say anything. 2.05 p.m. All right, now look, boy, you've been sitting there for an hour and you haven't said a word. If there's something you want to say, well, listen. There's nothing to say. I tried. Tried to get away from her. All my life she's told me what to do. I, I tried to tell her, but I couldn't. Nobody would understand. You don't. You can't. Every time I tried to get away, she'd say something or do something so I couldn't leave. I was trapped and I didn't know what to do. Then I thought I did know and even that didn't work. I thought that if you told her I was dead, she'd forget me. Leave me alone. I can't even die right. Kevin, you're here. I knew what they told me was wrong. I knew you were all right. Hello, Mother. What's happened to you, Kevin, darling? Your face, your clothes. Oh, my poor baby, how did this happen? Are you all right? Oh, your poor face all cut. What's happened, Kevin? It's all right, Mother. No, it's not all right. I don't know what happened or who did this awful thing, but I'll take care of it. Officer. Yes, ma'am? What do you know about this? I beg your pardon? What do you know about this? Did you do it? Did you hit this poor boy? Look at this poor face. Just look at it. It's terrible. That's what it is. It's terrible. I mean to find out just what happened here. I'll get to the bottom of this. No, don't you worry, Kevin, baby. Mother's here. She'll take care of you. Mother, please. Oh, it's all right, honey. Everything will be all right. Mother, these officers had nothing to do with it. Of course not, if you say so, Kevin, baby. Have you called the doctor about this? Have you gotten in touch with someone to take care of his face? Never mind. I'll take him to a doctor. I'll look after him. Poor baby. Mother will look after him. Mother, please don't. Now, Kevin, you know that Mother knows what's best. Mother will take care of it. Stop it. Stop it. Shut up. Kevin. I'm sick of it. Tired of it. For 20 years, as long as I can remember, you've taken care of things. Did you ever think I might want to take care of a few things myself? Have you ever thought that I wasn't a kid anymore? I'm an adult. Like it says on the missing report, male, white, American, 22 years, an adult. All right, take it easy, son. No, I've, I've tried to say this before, and I've never had the nerve... I've got it now, and I'm going to finish. I'm tired of having you make all the arrangements for me. I'm going to have dates with girls that I want to go out with, not the ones you pick for me. I'm going to get a job and make my own way. I'm going to buy a car, and if I smash it up and me along with it, it's my business. I'll never forgive you for what you've done. You spent 20 years making me an outsider, always on the fringe. I couldn't do the things I wanted to, only the things you wanted me to do, only the things you thought best. I'm sick of having you make the decisions for me. From here on in, I'm going to make them myself. I tried to kill Kevin Bradley for no reason. You killed him a long time ago. Take a good look at me, Mother. Take a good look and see what you've done. I hate the sight of you. I hate everything about you. Now leave me alone and go away. All right, take it easy, boy. It's all right, officer. I understand. Sometimes he gets like this. He doesn't mean it. I know him. All right, Kevin. I'm sure the officers are impressed. Dry your eyes and we'll go home. Do you hear me, Kevin? Stop this foolishness, I said. We're going home. Yes, Mother, I hear you. I'm sorry, officers. Embarrassing. I don't know why he does these things. He's always been pretty emotional. Yes, ma'am. There's nothing else. We better be going. I want to catch the early plane back to the city. 
A party planned for tomorrow night, a million things to do. You'll have to help Kevin. Kevin, do you hear me? Yes, Mother, I hear you. Well, then say goodbye to the officers and let's go. Goodbye, Mr. Friday. Mr. Smith. I'm sorry this all happened. Yeah, so are we, son. I tried, Sergeant. Just didn't work, but I did try. Kevin, let's go. I don't want to miss that plane. Yes, Mother. Uh, oh, Sergeant. Uh, yes, ma'am. Thank you for giving my boy back to me. The story you have just heard was true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On August 9th, the matter was taken before the city attorney for a decision. In the interest of justice, there was no complaint filed against Kevin Allen Bradley. You have just heard Dragnet, a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were Herb Ellis, Edwin Bruce, Sarah Selby. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking. King Size Fatima has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. Friday, hear the Mario Lanza Show on NBC. That was Dragnet as originally heard on NBC back on the 4th of September in 1952. The name of that episode was The Big Test. That hammer hitting the steel stamp that says Mark 7 Productions that used to see on Dragnet on all the TV shows, uh, I added that. That wasn't on the original radio show, but I just love that, so I a lot of times will add it. And there's just a couple program notes. Uh, Ensenada, California, or Ensenada, Mexico, is about 50 miles south of Tijuana, 50, 55 miles or so. And it's a, a popular uh, tourist place, or at least it used to be. I remember uh, we would rent a house down there from time to time. You could get a house right on the beach for very economically. Of course, these weren't fancy homes. These were like cinder block homes with tile floors. But they were comfortable, and they were right on the beach. And uh, we would get a group of people and go down there, and it was a lot of fun. Back then, Ensenada was as far as you could go into the interior of Mexico without a passport. Now, these days, you need a passport to go out of the country at all, even up to Canada. They would um, have a lot of uh, cooking on the beach. Uh, people would uh, rent horses on the beach and ride along the beach, and, and it just really a great time. Also, did you notice in the beginning, that was Herb Ellis that was playing Frank. This was right before, I believe, that Ben Alexander uh, started the role. But Herb, nonetheless, played uh, Frank Smith, and his wife was always Faye, and they were always having domestic squabbles. And did you get that point about, uh, well, here, I, here, here's a little clip from it right here. I'll just play it. 
But I didn't want to come right out and tell her in front of the Johnsons, you know. Yeah, I understand. So I picked up one of the meatballs that was burned, said she'd invented something new. Everybody else used chlorophyll for their teeth, but we had built-in charcoal. He always knew how to win points with his wife, didn't he? But it got me thinking, I remember chlorophyll. Do you remember Chlorette's gum? That was that green gum. Well, there was, if you go back, I pulled up a number of photos of uh, Colgate tooth powder that featured chlorophyll. And that was supposed to clean your teeth. And of course, clean your breath was the big thing. But I don't remember charcoal in toothpaste. And yet, when I, when I looked into it, apparently there were certain toothpastes that had a charcoal additive. And what I didn't know is charcoal now is very popular for teeth whitening. D- did you know that? It seems just the opposite, doesn't it? But, uh, but anyway, in case you remember that, but I remember Chlorettes. Do they still make Chlorettes? They may make the, the breath mints. But I don't know if they still make the gum. Remember how the gum was was uh, green, but the tooth powder was white. But then when you'd brush with it, the chlorophyll would turn it green. So if you're a baby boomer, maybe you remember a toothpaste with chlorophyll, or if you remember anything more about a charcoal additive in toothpaste, send me an email, would you, Bob at uh, boomerboulevard.com? I'd sure like to know about. It. More Dragnet coming up in the weeks ahead. When the world is gray and bleak Baby, don't you cry I will give you every bit of love That's in my heart I will make it up Into a simple little
That was Quincy Coleman that we heard first with the Pie Song, uh, which was featured in a really sweet little movie called The Waitress with Carrie Russell, and I believe it was Andy Griffith's last film. Very sweet movie. If you ever get a chance to catch it on cable, watch it. I think you'll enjoy it. And then that was followed up by The Highwayman, the original Highwayman, not the the group that featured Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash and Chris Christopherson, and whoever was in it. This was the Highwaymen from back in the 60s, a folk group. And the name of that tune was Cotton Fields. Both of those just were kind of feel-good songs, and I thought I'd play them. The first one, the lullaby, of course, is a more, much more contemporary tune, but just has that kind of nice old-fashioned feel. All right, how about a little comedy, everybody? Something familiar Something peculiar Something for everyone A comedy tonight Something appealing Something appalling Something for everyone A comedy tonight Nothing with kings Nothing with crowns Bring on the lovers Liars and clowns Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight. <laughs> On our comedy corner tonight, we're going to play a very funny episode of the Bickersons. Now, I'm always a little confused when it comes to the history of the Bickersons. 
again, I don't claim to be a radio historian. I, I listen to the Bickersons and shows like it because I'm entertained by them. I think they're funny. A lot of shows that were supposed to be comedies weren't funny, and I don't play those. But the Bickersons, I think, are funny, and so that's why I play them on my shows. Here's a brief history as I understand it. The Bickersons were created by Philip Rapp, who was a writer who had written for Eddie Cantor and also created many of the famous uh, Fanny Bryce skits that ended up being the Baby Snooks radio show. Rapp first developed John and Blanche Bickerson in short sketches that were featured on the Old Gold Show, as well as the Chase and Sanborn Hour. Next, the Bickersons were added as a 15-minute sketch on the show Dream Time, which was a variety show that was hosted by Don Amici and Francis Langford. Dream Time, which was named for Dream Shampoo, that's D-R-E-N-E, Shampoo, Normally opened with uh, Langford singing a number with the band, and then she and Amici would do comedy routines. After a second musical number, then Amici and Langford did a 15-minute sketch called The Bickersons, The Honeymoon's Over, which closed out the show. Well, that became so popular that Don Amici and Francis Langford were offered their own series, The Bickersons, in September 1946. It played for a year or so on NBC, then I think it went over to CBS, and then it, let's see, the Bickersons initially ran for two seasons, although the show was revived in 1951 as a summer replacement series, but that featured Lou Parker and Francis Langford. And by the way, Lou Parker was very good. We have a number of those episodes in our files, and I've played one or two of them in the past. The Bickersons fought about anything and everything, especially Blanche's 'er ne'er-do-well brother Amos, who was normally played by Danny Thomas. Many of the finest Bickerson skits revolved around the conflicts brought on by John's snoring and Blanche's insomnia. The episode that we're going to play tonight, again, is kind of a mystery to me. I show it as having an original air date of 12-13-47. But I also show that it was an unaired pilot. So I'm very confused. And I I will say this. It sounds like a pilot episode because there's no credits given at the end of the show. And there's really no introduction to speak of. There were no commercials in the show. So if that's what it was, I don't know. But I do know that it's a very, very funny episode. So here we go with Don Amici and Francis Langford. I love the name, the Bickerson. <laughs> that's just, that's classic. That's really classic. And by the way, the writing on this really kind of reminds me a lot of Fibber McGee and Molly. Not that it's, I mean, this is a much meaner spirited, but it's so clever. Some of the writing in this and the dialogue is just so clever. Okay, here we go. The Bickersons, the name of this episode is the pink slip. Here it comes. Now, here are Don Amici and Francis Langford as John and Blanche Bickerson in The Honeymoon is Over. As the minute hand of the clock gradually approaches 7 a.m., John and Blanche Bickerson are in their breakfast room which is also the living room and bedroom of their spacious one-room apartment. Mrs. Bickerson chatters as husband John, ignoring his breakfast, attentively reads the morning paper. Well, why don't you answer me, John? 
Hmm? If you take your head out of that paper for a minute, you could hear what I'm saying. You always hear what you're saying. You do not. You might just as well be talking to a stone wall. You never listen to me. Your mind is always a million miles away. Hmm. John. Hmm. I've been signed up to go ten rounds with Joe Lewis at Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yesterday, the plumber discovered a radium mine under the bathroom sink. Hmm. I put a nice big gob of poison in your orange juice this morning. Mm-hmm. Give me seven dollars to buy a new hat. You don't need a new hat. It's a funny thing, but the minute I start talking about money, you can hear me fine. I always hear you, Blanche. What'd you say? I asked you why you came home so late last night. I was working, Blanche. I told you I had to work overtime. Pour me some more coffee. That's tea. Did you get paid? I'll get paid. What time did you get home? 12.30. If you got home at 12.30, why were you so late coming to bed? I know for a fact you didn't go to bed until almost 2. I was in the kitchen putting the stuff away. What stuff? What's the matter, Blanche? You know you told me to bring stuff home for the party this afternoon. Your sister Clara's arriving from Chicago today and you told me to bring stuff. Well, I brought stuff. Did you bring potatoes for the potato salad? I brought potatoes. Did you pair them? I paired them. All of them? All except one. It had a big knob on top and I couldn't find a mate for it. I know what you meant, Blanche. I peeled the potatoes and I even boiled them last night. They're in the icebox. Holy smoke, look at the time. Where's my hat? You're wearing it. What about your breakfast? What about it? It's sitting there right in front of you and you never even looked at it. I looked at it. Well, aren't you going to eat it? No, give it to your sister. What's the matter with it? Never saw such stringy oatmeal in all my life. It's not oatmeal. It's chow mein. <laughs> chow mein? Who eats chow mein for breakfast? Well, I don't know what to give you. You won't eat normal breakfast food. You turn up your nose at stewed rabbit. You say you can't stand the sight of enchiladas. And you hate meatballs and spaghetti. What can I give you for breakfast? What's the matter with an egg, Blanche? An egg, that's all. Why can't I have an egg? There's plenty of ducks around. You're the only man in town who eats duck eggs. I don't know where to buy them. Well, don't buy them. I don't like to eat breakfast. Never have an appetite in the morning anyway. I gotta go, Blanche. It's late. Here's a clean handkerchief. John, can't you take the afternoon off? What for? Well, I think it's only proper for you to be here when Clara and Barney and the children arrive. We're the only relatives they've got, and you've never seen them. I'll see them tonight. Can't you come home a little earlier? I'm sure they won't miss you if you take a few hours off. You're not that vital. I know it, but I don't want them to find it out. <laughs> My job is hanging by a thread now. We should find something more dignified anyway. What do you mean, dignified? I'm getting paid, and that's all I care about. But I don't like to go around telling people that I'm married to a billiard ball salesman. Bowling balls. All right, bowling balls. I still think you can do better if you look around. Goodbye, Blanche. John! What's the matter? That's a fine way to leave. Haven't you forgotten something? Handkerchief, cigarettes, my order blank, samples. No, no, I, I got everything. I mean, is that the way to say goodbye to his wife? Just goodbye? Oh, honey, I can't shake hands with you now. <laughs> got my fingers stuck in these bowling balls. Oh, goodbye. Did you like the chicken, Barney? Too much salt in it. Oh. Let me take those bones off your plate. How about some more potato salad, Barney? Too many potatoes in it. Isn't it awful to be married to a man like that, Blanche? He won't eat potato salad with potatoes in it. I have to fool him and make it with turnips. 
Oh, for heaven's sake, Clara. Well, it's certainly good to see you after all these years. Did you have a good trip? Lousy. Marnie, how can you say that? It was a wonderful trip, and the children loved it. Four of us in an upper berth. Oh, it wasn't bad at all, Blanche. Honest. None of us are big people, and little Ernie slept in the clothes hammock. Two-year-old kid, and she lets him wander all over the train by himself. Well, I couldn't take care of everything, Barney. When the train stopped at Albuquerque, the kid locked himself in the washroom. I wouldn't come out. The conductor was pounding on the window, but that was locked, too. Well, what happened to him? Oh, we found him later walking around under the train. <laughs> I still can't figure out how he got there. Did little George behave himself on the trip? Like an angel. He can be an awful good boy when he wants to. He seemed rather pleased to get off at Pasadena and visit with Barney's sister, didn't he, Barney? No. Well, your sister seemed pleased. They should be here pretty soon. How long does it take to get here from Pasadena, Blanche? By train? Yes. Well, John works there and never takes him over 45 minutes. I thought George was going to stay in Pasadena for a while. Well, I thought so, too. But after Eunice took a look at him, she said she'd bring him back this evening. Uh, which one of you two is older? What? Oh, stop it, Barney. He wants to know everybody's age. Well, Clara's my older sister. Didn't you know that, Barney? No, I didn't know that. You look way older than Clara. <laughs> really? That's just his left-handed way of paying me compliments, Blanche. Barney, why don't you go back to the apartment and see if Ernie's still sleeping? I'll stay here and wait for George. Okay. I'd better take a little nap myself. I might have to look for a job next week. What's the number of that apartment house? 214. The first apartment on the left. Go ahead. Okay, I'll take them chicken bones for Ernie. He's teething. <laughs> you know, Clara, I'd completely forgotten what Barney was like. He's awful little for a husband, isn't he? Well, he may be small, but he's wiry. <laughs> sort of outspoken, isn't he? I'd rather have a man be frank about things than say one thing and mean another. Is John still as short-tempered as ever? Well, he's... Barney used to be that way before the children came. They changed everything. We haven't had a crossword since George was born. Is that so? You'd be surprised what a change would come over John if there was a child in the house. I know. A lot of people have told me that, Clara. Blanche, uh, I was just thinking, that apartment you got for us is rather small for four people. Well, it's the best I could do, Clara, and it's only temporary. Oh, I know, dear, but I... I was just thinking... Why don't you let little George live with you for a while? George? We'd be killing two birds with one stone. Our apartment will be less crowded, and there'll be a big change in your married life. Maybe you're right, Clara. I'll call John at the office and tell him we're going to have a baby. Acme Bowling Alley Equipment Company. Could I talk to Mr. Bickerson, please? Not in. He hasn't come off his route yet. Well, will you please leave word for him to call his wife as soon as he gets there? Okay. Thank you. Goodbye. Ah, oh, for the love of Pete! Look out where you dropped those samples, Bickerson. Oh, I couldn't carry him another minute. Why doesn't that cheap buzzard buy us cases for the darn things? My fingers look like a bunch of bananas. <laughs> Call your wife. She just called here. Yeah. Do any good today? Ah, waste of shoe leather. I can't understand it. Here it is, the height of the Christmas season, and nobody is buying bowling balls. <laughs> Nothing doing, huh? No. 
Where is he? He went home early. It's been murder here today. Ah, the old man don't bother me. He just lets off steams. Bark is worse than his bite. Well, he bit a few salesmen today. <laughs> so what? They come and they go. I've been here 12 years. Uh-huh. Business has been bad before. Last year, he lined up 10 salesmen, took an 18-pound two-holer, and chalked up a spare. <laughs> I was the only salesman left standing. <laughs> you were, huh? Yeah, I was. He knows a good thing when he sees one. Uh-huh. Uh, here's your pay envelope, Bickerson. <laughs> pay envelope? Today isn't payday. It is for you. You're kidding. No, I'm not. You got the axe. Holy smoke. Oh, don't take it so hard. I'll probably be next. Oh, I don't care for myself. It's what my wife is going to say. She'll blow her cork. What for? It's only a job. Oh, you don't understand. She's got her relatives here from Chicago. She's already figured on a Christmas shopping, and I haven't got 50 cents in the bank. Well, I wish I could help you, Bickerson, but... You, I'm afraid to go home and face her. Do me a favor, will you, Marv? Sure. What do you want me to do? Call up my wife and tell her. You want me to tell her you were fired? Yeah, but break the news very gently. First tell her I dropped dead and then gradually work up to it. Excuse me, will you? Uh, pardon me. I'm sorry. Uh, is this seat taken, Sonny? Sonny, is this seat taken? No. Would you mind taking your feet off? Okay. Those packages, too. Huh? Will you please take those packages off the seat? Just throw them on the floor. Okay. Wise little monkey. Uh, where's that help-wanted page? Huh? Nothing. See, accountant, artist, automobile salesman, baker, barber, bartender, bookkeeper. Bartender. Bartender. What do you have? You mind your own business. Excuse me. You're sitting in my seat. Huh? Oh. Oh, I'm sorry, madam. Uh, your son told me it wasn't taken. He's not my son. And I didn't tell him it wasn't taken either. What? I told him somebody was sitting here and he knocked all your packages on the floor. You told me this seat wasn't taken and you told me to throw the packages on the floor. I did not. You did too. Oh, you ought to be ashamed of yourself trying to blame that little child. You can have my seat, madam. I'm going into the smoking car. Thank you. I I I'm sorry, really I am. Uh, let me pick up those packages for you. Never mind, I'll get them myself. The very idea. Oh, who did that? He did it. I seen him pinch you. Pinch who? What's the matter with you, you little muzzler? You just wait until the conductor comes by here. Sit down here, dear. I didn't like his looks from the minute he got along. Oh, I know the type. My husband's a correction officer. What'd you do that for? Huh? Why'd you tell that lady I pinched her? And why'd you tell me this seat wasn't taken? What did you tell me all those lies for? Give me my bubble gum. What bubble gum? I haven't got your bubble gum. You have two. It's stuck to your pants. <laughs> Look at that. How am I going to get that off? Give me my bubble gum. Keep quiet till I get my knife out. I want my bubble gum. Stop pulling it by pants. <laughs> That's just fine. I want my bubble gum. Why don't you give the child his bubble gum? He ripped my trousers. Whoa, he pulled a knife on me. Shut up, you little weasel. <laughs> hey, what's going on here? You're looking for 
trouble, buddy. Oh, wait a minute. The man's a lunatic. He tried to stab that child. Get out of your mind. Somebody pull the emergency. I didn't, I didn't have it. I should have stabbed a little brat at that. <coughs> Kids. No wonder tigers eat their young. John, what happened to you? Your pants are torn. You're covered with dust. Where have you been? I've been calling the office for hours. I got put off the train and I walked all the way home from Glendale. Well, what happened? I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to even think about it. All I want to do is go to bed. Oh, you poor dear. And I have such a wonderful surprise for you. Surprise? Yes, we're going to be the happiest couple in the world. And all because of my sister Clara. What are you talking about? George, come out and meet your new daddy. Well, what do you think of him, John? Oh, no. Go on, Sonny. Kiss him. Not me. That's the crook who stole my bubble gum. <laughs> Bickersons have retired. Blanche Bickerson tosses restlessly in the dark as poor husband John, unstrung by the events of the day and suffering an attack of undulant insomnia or blasters phenomenon, engages in another losing battle with a dread ailment. Listen. What's the matter? What, 
What's the matter, Blanche? There isn't another woman in the world who'd sacrifice her youth and her looks to live with a man who rattles himself to sleep like a, a lot of old bones in a bag. What do you think I am, John? Old bag. What? What'd you say, Blanche? I've never been so upset in all my life. Why couldn't the child live with us for a few weeks? What child? George. Don't mention his name. Well, you had no right to send him back to Clara. Clara and Barney are just sick about it. I can well imagine. <laughs> Let me sleep, Blanche. I had him here for two hours before you got home, and he was a perfect angel. Mm. What if he did make a little trouble on the train? A He's a boy, trouble. and all boys are kind of wild. Anyway, how did he know that you were his uncle? What kind of an excuse is that? Well, I'm sure if you just try to understand him, there wouldn't be any problem at all. That's what you think. I don't think I know. I don't think you know either. <laughs> Ed's gone. I'll forget about him. I won't forget about him. And you needn't have made such an exhibition when you hauled him down the street to his mother. Oh. That was no way to carry a boy, John. Well, I used to be a bowling ball salesman. <laughs> Almost got my finger bit off. What do you mean you used to be? Well, did, uh, did he tell you? Didn't, uh, did Marvin call you from the office? Nobody called me from the office. What happened? I got fired. Oh, John, what did he do that for? I didn't do it. The boss did it. Well, he must have had a pretty good reason. I felt this coming for a long time, John. You haven't had your mind on your work. Business was bad. How can you say that? Prices are going up every day. Well, nobody's buying. That's not true. I'm buying twice as much as I ever did. Business isn't bad with me. Good night, Blanche. No. If you didn't do any business, it's because you weren't concentrating on your work. You've just lost your ambition. You're not the man I married, John. Whatever happened to your get up and go? It got up and went. <laughs> I'll tell you what happened. You've lost interest in everything except that precious bourbon of yours. Now, just a minute. Please. I married a great big corkscrew. I resent that. I don't care. You can accuse me of not being a good salesman or not having ambition or anything else, but drinking is not one of my failures. No, it's one of your few successes. <laughs> the only reason I use bourbon is because the doctor prescribed it. He said I'd stop snoring if I took a jigger of bourbon and two aspirins every night. That's not what you do, though. Yes, it is. It is not. You're six months behind on the aspirin and two years ahead on the bourbon. <laughs> well, aspirin gives me a headache. <laughs> bourbon has nothing to do with me losing my job. Then why did you get fired? Because no man can serve two masters. That's right. Blame me. Since when do I boss you around? You know very well I let you have your own way in almost everything I want. You've been running me for years. I have not. It started right at the altar. When I said, I do, you said, oh, no, you don't. How can you lie there and deliberately make oh, up well, such Oh, well, don't rile me up. You just sympathize with me when I get a bad break. Instead of hounding me, our marriage would work a lot better. Matrimony is a serious thing. You're a fine one to talk about matrimony. You don't even know the meaning of the word. It's not a word, it's a sentence. <laughs> oh, you poor thing, how you suffer. I didn't get such a bargain, you know. There's better fish in the ocean than the one I caught. There's better bait, too. <laughs> then it's true. You don't love me and you never did. Oh, I did, too. What? I mean, I do, too. <laughs> You don't, you don't, you don't. Blanche, I do. Well, you never say it. I say it a thousand times a day. Well, say it now. I love you. Well, you love me as long as you live? Yes. Swear. Swear you love me as long as you live. Cross my heart and hope to die. <laughs> that has a double meaning. Well, I only meant it one way. 
It's really an effort for you to show any kind of affection for me, isn't it, John? Why are you so ashamed to tell me you love me? I'm not ashamed, Blanche. I just can't seem to convince you. That's all. You know I love you so. So what? That's what I say. Who cares? <laughs> Put out the lights and go to sleep. If only you'd let me know that you appreciate what I'd do for you. Oh, you don't do so much for me. Is that so? Who cooks for you? I do. Who cleans for you? I do. You do. Who does your laundry? The laundry. <laughs> Only once, and that's because the washing machine was broken. If it wasn't for me, you wouldn't have a clean shirt. I haven't got a clean shirt. You have to. I dusted one off today. <laughs> dusted it off is right. And you press the collar with a curling iron. Besides, I wore it today. Today? What happened to the shirt you wore Tuesday? I wore it Wednesday. And I was going to wear it again Saturday, but I spilled some gravy on it Friday, so I cut the stain out and made a brown collar for my Sunday shirt. Oh, stop complaining. You've got two lovely shirts. One shirt, and it's not lovely. It hasn't even got a shirt tail. You don't need a shirt tail. Just wear your pants higher. I can't wear them any higher. I wear my pants so high now, I have to unzip them to blow my nose. to Gloria Goosby. Now, don't start with Gloria Goosby. Believe me, if you were around her for a little while, you'd cool off in a hurry. I've been around her for hours and I never cool off. <laughs> I mean, I despise Gloria Goosby and I wouldn't have anything to do with her. And why does she keep staring at you like she's hypnotized? She doesn't stare. Just that she wears those outlandish dresses and they bring out her eyes. <laughs> they bring out yours, too. <laughs> No wonder all you men gawk at her. All her gowns are strapless and backless. Would you like me to dress like that? Mm. Maybe I should. Wonder how I'd look in a gown that's strapless and backless. Skinless and boneless. <laughs> I'll never forgive you for that remark, John Biggerson. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so tired. I don't know what I'm saying. Why don't you let me sleep, Blanche? Blanche, where are you going? I'm leaving this house and I'm never coming back. Blanche, wait a minute. Come back here. What's the matter with you? It's no use, John. We'll keep on fighting like this. I tried to make our lives more pleasant by bringing little George here, but you wouldn't have him. All right. I'll go get him in the morning. You say it, but you won't do it. <laughs> do it now. What? Go on. Get up and bring George back. Blanche, are you out of your mind? It's four o'clock in the morning. Either you bring George back or I'm leaving. Nobody'd believe this. Where's my clothes? Just throw my kimono over your pajamas. <laughs> they only live down the street, 214. The first apartment on the left. I know I'll wake up and find this is all a bad dream. Go on, take a flashlight so you don't have to turn any lights on. I'll phone Claire and tell her you're coming. Two fourteen. Where is two fourteen? Wish they'd put some street lights in this crummy neighborhood. Broken down flashlight is no good. Batteries must be dead. Can't see your hand in front of your face. Looking for something? Huh? Oh, hello, officer. Uh, shine that light around a little bit. I'm looking for number 214. Live there? No. No, just looking. Why? Not everybody walks around at 3 o'clock in the morning wearing a pink kimono and carrying a bottle of bourbon. <laughs> bottle of bourbon? No wonder it wouldn't light it. Heaven, I almost threw it away. What's that? I picked it up by mistake. I thought it was a flashlight. Well, it's not a total loss. Will you join me, officer? Uh, 
No, thanks. I'm off duty. <laughs> 214. <laughs> 214's right on the corner. And you'd better keep moving so you don't catch cold. Yeah, yeah, I better wrap this bourbon around me a little tighter. <laughs> First apartment on the left. Hope I don't wake anybody up. Wish I could put on the light. Where is the little deer? Here he is, sleeping like an innocent newborn vulture. <laughs> well, here goes. <clears throat> Kid is heavier than I thought. Only another ten yards. Pick up a friend. Oh. <laughs> Was that you, officer? Yes, it's me. Uh, may I ask what you have in the bundle? It's my nephew. I'm bringing him home to my wife. It's a long story, officer, but I assure you, this is nothing anybody would want to steal. Mm-hmm. Well, you better watch how you got those blankets wrapped around his head. He's liable to smother. You think so? <laughs> Thanks, officer. Good night. Blanche, open up, will you? What'd you lock it for? He weighs a ton. Put on the lights. No, it'll wake him. Keep your voice down. What'll I do with him? I've got the cot already in the kitchen. Put him down gently, John. There. There's your new son. You've just become a mother. Are you satisfied? Shh. Go on into your own bed. Now I can sleep. Oh, what a day. Lost my job. Got thrown off a train. I delivered children at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Oh, John, must you start snoring as soon as you close your eyes? Snoring? Who's snoring? I'm not snoring. It's that darn kid. That's who it is. George? Yeah, George. Go turn him over on his side. Well, I never... Turn over, George, dear. John! What's the matter? This isn't George. You brought back Barney. <laughs> Why was I ever born? That was one of the truly funny shows in old-time radio, The Bickersons, with Don Amici and Francis Langford. And like I said, the episodes with uh, Lou Parker were very good, too. The writing just made such a difference. I mean, there were some good shows. You look at the Jack Benny show, Armis Brooks, uh, The Bickersons, uh, a few others, and they were just so well-written, Fibber McGee and Molly, certainly. And there were other shows that, even though they were comedies, I, I just came across a... Uh, a few uh, really pristine episodes of My Little Margie with Gail Storm and Charles Perrell. And I remember really liking that television show when I was a kid, and I was kind of excited to get these. I thought, oh, I'm going to play these. But it's perfect for Boomer Boulevard. They were just not funny. They were poorly written, poorly acted. Actors kept missing their cues. The jokes weren't funny. Just not funny. I'm not going to play that. I think I'll send one of them to Patricia and let her play it on her Friday night program because I always liked Gail Storm a lot, but boy, I guess maybe it appealed to me more when I was a kid. 
because it just almost juvenile, not well done at all. In fact, I was listening to the two back to back, trying to determine which show I was going to play. And I played uh, My Little Margie first. And then I played this episode of the Bickersons. I thought, there's just, there's just no comparison. This was just so much, so much better done. We have uh, maybe five or six more good episodes in my file. Unfortunately, many of the episodes of the Bickersons that are available, I can't find pristine quality sound on them. But I've got four or five episodes. and We'll play those in the weeks ahead. I tell you, I can use a good crowd, you know? I mean, help me forget Las Vegas. I'm going broke over there. I mean, Vegas, you gotta go broke. They got slot machines all over, even in supermarkets. I bought a dozen eggs, cost me $442. <laughs> and I tell you, I'm never lucky at gambling, you know? I was in a game show. I won a 20-day cruise in the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> I tell you, with me, nothing works out, you know? I'm still heavy, I can't lose any weight. Now, last week I went nuts, I tried to rice diet. Between meals, kept folding my shirts. <laughs> and my doctor, he don't help either. He told me to run five miles a day for two weeks. I called him up, I said, Doc, I'm 70 miles from my house. <laughs> what a doctor. Well, one time I saw him, he gave me sleeping pills. He told me to take them whenever I wake up. <laughs> and I saw my dentist, too, another beauty. I said to him, Doc, look at my teeth, they're all getting yellow. He told me to wear a brown necktie. <laughs> I tell you, I meet the wrong people, that's my trouble. Like last week, I met the Surgeon General. He offered me a cigarette. I tell, you, I tell you, last week was a rough week for me last week. I saw my kid and a milkman going to a father and son dinner. <laughs> I don't know. I tell you, in my own house, I can't relax. I got no sex life. Uh, ten years ago, my wife put me on hold. What a sex life. With a dog, he's watching me in a bedroom, wants to learn how to beg. And my dog, that's another one. He taught my wife to roll over and play dead. And I tell you, I never had any luck with animals either, you know? When I was a kid in my sandbox, the cat kept covering me up. And I tell you, when I was a kid, I got no respect at all, you know? They always made me take the family picture. And that way I wouldn't be in it. My old man, he didn't help either, kept taking me to the zoo. He said he was hoping my real parents would claim me. <laughs> it's the same thing today. I don't get no respect from anyone. Well, Carl Morton stole my traveler's checks. <laughs> I 
I tell you, I can't take it no more. I find out they want to use my family, make a sequel to Roots. They want to call it Fertilizer. That was Rodney Dangerfield and a bit he did on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson back in the, was that, probably in the 70s on that one. Maybe maybe in the early 80s. I'm looking over at Chester and he is really antsy. He, he has got all this built up energy. I don't know where that's coming from, eating too much chocolate or something, too many sweets. But anyway, he's, he's saying, he's holding up two records. And he's saying, dance. Dan- okay. These are Chester's choices. Why don't you get up right now and move the furniture out of the room? Because I have a feeling these are going to be dance songs. There she was, just walking down the street singing. Do what did it, did it, did it, do. Tapping her fingers and shuffling her feet singing. Do what did it, did it, she looked good. She looked fine. She looked good. She looked fine. And I nearly lost my mind. Before I knew it, she was walking next to me singing. Holding my hand just as natural as can be singing. We walk on to my door. We walk on to my door. Then we kissed a little more. Whoa, I knew we was falling in love. Yes, I did, and so I told her all the things I'd been dreaming of. Now we're together nearly every single day singing. Nearly every single day singing Oh, we're so happy And that's how we're gonna stay singing Well, I'm hers She's mine I'm hers She's mine Wing bells are gonna shine Oh, yeah
after all that marching earlier and now all that dancing, everybody's tired out. Everybody's tired out. Jester has collapsed into his uh, chair in there. Yeah, you did good, Jester. You should have seen him, man. He was really moving and grooving. That was uh, Manford Man and Do Wah Diddy. And that second one was a song we've played a couple times, and I keep getting requests for it. It's unbelievable. I, I Most people are not familiar with that version. They're familiar with the Elvis Presley version, but that is Wanda Jackson and a really rocking out version of Let's Have a Party from the from the 50s. We'll have some other musical selections coming up at the end of Gunsmoke, but right now it is time to turn our attention to the West. tell from the music, it is time to wander back in time, back to 1874. We're walking up Front Street in Dodge City, Kansas, shoulder to shoulder with Marshal Matt Dillon. Yes, everybody, it is time for Gunsmoke. And we've got a good episode tonight. This one was originally broadcast in 1958. This one was first heard on June the 15th of that year, and it's entitled Old Flame. And it's a really good story with a bit of a surprise ending. See if you can figure it out uh, before you get to it. So here you go from 1958, Gunsmoke and the Old Flame. City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers. 
And that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Starring William Conrad, the story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Mr. Doby? Good afternoon, Chester. Hey, Mr. Doby, I ain't got no time for no idle talk. I want to see that drummer. What drummer is that, Chester? The one that sold me that derby hat the other day. The one with the gold tooth in front. That drummer. Ah, oh, Chester, you know I can't let you go around bothering the guests of the Dodge House. I got a right to bother him. That cussed hard hat he sold me like to kilt me. Oh, now, Chester. Well, it did. I wore it yesterday for the first time yesterday being Sunday and all. I know what day. And that sudden shower come up and... Well, I couldn't get that hat off of my head. It was stuck on there, pressing in on my brain something terrible. Felt like everything was being ooched over all to one side. Give me an awful headache. <laughs> you should have had better sense. Well, Doc said it was a very delicate operation. Operation? Yes, operation. He had to cut that hat right off my head. He said if it had been on any tighter, he'd have had to chloroform me. Oh, for heaven's sake. It's the gospel truth. He... My. Pardon me, gentlemen. Well, sure, ma'am. Oh, uh, something I can do for you, Miss Milton? Well, I don't want to interrupt. Oh, my land, don't you worry nothing about that. I'll just leave her have her say, Chester. You speak right up, ma'am. Why, I was wondering if either of you gentlemen might know a friend of mine. Well, I expect we know everybody in town, all right. <laughs> well, I heard he was somewhere in Kansas... His name is Matt Dillon. Mr. Dillon? The marshal? Well, then you know him. Oh, Matt Dillon's the marshal of Dodge City, Miss Milton. The marshal? Oh, fancy that. Well, then he's probably too busy to bother with me. Oh, no, ma'am. Oh, I know he'd be proud to. Now, you just let me tell him you're here. Well, if you know him. Well, I should just say I do. Oh, how very interesting, Mr. You're Proudfoot, ma'am. Chester W. Proudfoot, but... Nobody don't use my last name. All right, then. Chester, <laughs> I wonder if you'd be so kind as to take a message to Mr. Dillon for me. Oh, you bet your boots, ma'am. I mean, yes, ma'am, I sure would. Would you tell him Miss Dolly Milton is here from Texas, staying at the Dodge House, and that she'd be pleased if he'd find time to call on her? Yes, ma'am, I'll do that, Miss Milton. I sure will do that. Thank you for your kindness. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Good afternoon, Miss Milton. Afternoon, ma'am. My, she sure is a pretty little thing. Yeah. Now, Chester, about that drummer. Oh, my gracious, Mr. Doby, don't bother me about that drummer. Can't you see I got something important to tend to?
Matt. Matt Dillon. Hello, Dolly. How wonderful to see you again. Oh, it's good to see you, too. Please, call me. Oh, thank you. Oh, it's been a long time, Matt. It has been a long time. You look as though you've prospered. Oh, I get along. That's about all, though. But you're a U.S. Marshal. You've done yourself proud. Ah, just a job. Well, it agrees with you. I must say you're looking fine, Matt. Well, I can say the same thing for you. <laughs> I guess that's as close to a compliment as Matt Dillon ever did come. <laughs> Won't you sit down? Oh, thank you. Well, uh, what are you doing in Dodge? Oh, I don't know, Matt. I'm kind of restless. I guess I'm looking for another place to settle down. I thought you'd be married and settled down long before this. I am married, Matt. Oh? Well, I thought Chester said your name was Milton, same as he used to be. I won't use that man's name. But your husband's? I don't acknowledge him as such. He's a cruel man, Matt, a brutal man. I had to run away. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, darling. Uh, is there anything I can do? You can be my friend. A woman can be mighty lonely, Matt. I always have been your friend. I guess I knew that. But thanks for saying it, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> I still don't quite understand why you came to Dodge, though. Why not, Matt? Well, it, it isn't much of a town for a woman, I... How'd you think St. Louis would be much better for you if you're looking for a place to settle? Maybe I wanted to be near a friend. Maybe I wanted to know the marshal. Sure. Well. Matt. It's going to be wonderful being with you again. Knowing you're close by. I just hope I get to see a lot of you. Sure, Dolly. Sure. Hello, Miss Kitty. Well, hello, Chester. Mind if I sat down? No, of course not. Thank you. I just kind of had the feeling you might not mind some company. Huh? Well, I mean, a few words with an old friend and all like that. Well, thank you, Chester. That's very nice of you. Well, I know how it can be when... I mean, well, my, it can get kind of lonesome-like when... Well, don't you worry about it, Chester. I'll make out all right. Well, sure you will, but I swear I don't know what's the matter with Mr. Dillon. Oh, yeah, she's got a pretty face and all that. Well, there's but... nothing the matter with him except that he's a man. I guess you're right, but I sure do wish he'd... You sure wish he'd watch, Chester. Hello, Kitty. Hey, wait. Hey, nothing, Mr. Dillon. Hello, Matt. Well, guess I better get on back to the office. Oh, what's your hurry? I, I got a feeling there's something I forgot to do around there. Goodbye, Miss Kitty. Bye, Chester. You mind if I sit down? Go ahead. Well, you look about the same. Haven't changed much. Oh. 
What does that mean? Since I last saw you. Now, Kitty, it's only been three or four days. They tell me you've been busy. Yeah. She's very pretty. She's an old friend, Kitty. I'm sure she is. Yeah, she's in some kind of trouble. I haven't been able to figure it out. It's uh, something to do with a man. Is that a fact? Oh, no, Kitty. Well, no, it's your business, Matt. Of course. But I'd like to tell you something. Oh, what's that? I'm a pretty good judge of men, and I'm an awful good judge of women. And this woman, this Dolly... Well, Matt, I'll bet the last bottle in this saloon that she's not what she's pretending to be. Do you know her? I've seen her. That's an awful lot of whiskey to bet on somebody you never even talked to, isn't it? The bet still goes. But I guess you'll have to find out for yourself. Yeah, Kitty. I guess I will. Would you like anything more, Dolly? Oh, no, thank you, Matt. I had a great plenty. Some more coffee, maybe. Oh, please. All right. You know, Delmonico's cooking isn't exactly fancy, but uh, (laughs) it keeps us alive Oh, it's fine, just fine. And I can't tell you how much I enjoy being with you. Well, I'm not very fancy either. No, but I don't have to be afraid of you, Matt. I don't scare many women. Some men do. Some men scare them and hurt them. Like your husband, huh? Yes, like my husband. Oh, Matt, I I can't bear to think of the terrible things... Well, you just better forget them. All men aren't like that, you know. Oh, I know. And you are a great comfort to me. Matt, you'd know if there were any strangers in town, wouldn't you? Well, I usually know. I know for sure if they get into any trouble. And you'd know about people moving near here, too, wouldn't you? Living out in the country? Well. You'd know where to find them, wouldn't you? Are you thinking that maybe your husband might follow you? Is that it? Well, I can never be sure. But you'd protect me, wouldn't you, Matt? You'd stand up against him. I'd have to know who he was first. I guess I ought to tell you. Forgive me, Matt. I had to be sure I could trust you. Oh, hello, Matt. Oh, Doc. And Miss Milton. Hello. Oh, well, I see you're just finished. Oh, we are, Doc, but you're welcome to sit down with us if you like. Please do. No, no, thanks. I think I'll just have a quick bite and turn in. Uh, a rough day? Well, it's been a messy day, Matt. I had to treat a badly injured woman out at the Meadows place. Meadows? Oh, what happened to her? She fell off a ladder. She lost her baby, Matt. Smashed a couple of ribs, broke her arm, bruised from head to toe. It was a hard thing. Doctor, do they live near here? It's due west, a couple of miles. They're new. They they haven't been there long. They need any help? No, 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 I don't think. The husband says he can handle it by himself. He's one of these big independent cusses. He doesn't talk much, though. Well, I'll just sit down at that clean table over there. So good night, Miss Milton. Good night, Doctor. Go along, Doc. Matt. Matt, that's him. His name's Meadows. Rad Meadows. He's here. Oh, Dolly, take it easy. Maybe it's not the same man at all. This one's It is the same man, Matt. And that woman, she's not his wife. She couldn't be. Uh, We're pretty far away to be sure. I am sure, and I'm sure something else. She didn't get hurt falling off of any ladder. He did it to her. Dolly, Dolly, calm down. Look, 
I'll take a ride out there tomorrow and look things over. He should be stopped. He should be killed. He's a terrible Dolly. man. Dolly. Matt, I'm, I'm frightened. Oh, well, just don't worry about it, huh? Look, I tell you what, you, you stay right in your room till I get back and nothing will happen to you, huh? All right. Now, come on now, and I'll see you at your hotel. Mr. Dillon. Well, forevermore, you starting off already? I ain't even boiled the coffee yet. I want to get started, Chester. I got to ride out west of town. Oh, following Miss Dolly Milton again? What do you mean? Well, she headed off west just a few minutes ago, driving a buggy as neat as you please. Huh? Are you sure of that? Well, of course I'm sure. Ain't nobody else around here looks like her. Why in the world would she be heading out of town all by herself at this hour of the morning? That just don't make sense. I'm afraid it does, Chester. Come on. You mean you want me to come along, too? Yeah. Well, but I thought you and Miss Milton... I said I wanted you to come, Chester, and I put down the coffee pot and go get the horses. Yes, sir. Swear I don't understand, Mr. Dillon. If she's so afraid of this rad Meadows, why'd she come out here all by herself? That's what I hope to find out, Chester. Looks like she got here all right. There's her buggy out by the barn. Yeah, well, it's right over there. Say to the horses, Chester. Yes, sir. I told you better than you know, but I can do this. Dolly. Dolly, put that gun down. I hope he's dead. Here, give me that gun. Give it to me. Chester. Yes, sir. Here. Here's her gun. Keep an eye on her while I see about mothers. Yes, sir. Can you hear me? Did you... Did you come with Dolly? I'm the U.S. Marshal from Dodge. Do me a favor, Marshal. Get Dolly out of here. Chester. Yes, sir. Take her out to the buggy. Come on, Dolly. I'm not going to stop trying, Rad. Not as long as you live with any woman but me, you hear? Next time, I'll kill you. Come on, get moving, Dolly. I gotta get... Got to get into the house. Got to tell my wife I'm all right. Meadows. Huh? You never were married to Dolly, were you? No. No, Marshal. She liked to chase me all over Texas, but... I never felt that way about her. And she never forgave me. Yeah, I see she didn't. She claims that you treated her pretty bad, that you beat her and all that. Oh. To tell you the truth, Marshal, I never even touched her. I think that's what she couldn't stand. Yeah, maybe. I don't ask you to believe me, Marshal. There are ways of checking. Folks down Texas way will tell you. She's pretty well known down there. I think I do believe you, Meadows. 
Well, come on, I'll help you into the house. Yeah. And we'll oh. get Doc Adams to come take a look at you. Yeah. Make you feel real proud, Matt? Locking a woman up? Nothing about this makes me proud, darling. You were mighty silent on the way in. I was just thinking. Thinking about how you were taken in by an old friend? Yeah, maybe. Well, you're lucky, Matt. When I first heard that Rad was up this way, I had in mind you might do my shooting for me. Well, I might not have been quite that obliging, darling. Once I found out just where he was, I wanted to do my own shooting. What are you going to do with me? I'm not going to do anything with you. I'm just going to hold you until Meadows gets well enough to decide whether he wants to sign a complaint. And that'll be up to the jury. Are you really going to leave me here? Yeah, Dolly. I really am. Sorry, Mr. Dillon. I know this must go kindly hard for you. No, it's all right, Chester. Such a pretty little thing to go gunning for a man. Yeah, she's pretty, all right. Well, good night, Chester. Uh, you going out someplace? Yeah. I lost a bet, Chester. To Kitty. <laughs> it looks like I'm going to be supplying the whiskey for her saloon for <laughs> quite a spell. and directed by Norman MacDonald. Stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Featured in the cast were Parley Bear as Chester, Howard McNear as Doc, and Georgia Ellis as Kitty. George Walsh speaking. Join us again next week for another specially transcribed story on Gunsmoke. This is the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service. That episode of Gunsmoke was first heard on June the 15th, back in the year 1958 on CBS. And the name of it was The Old Flame. Pretty good story. More Gunsmoke coming up next time.
you cry when you say I'm gone You know there ain't no woman gonna settle me down I just gotta be traveling on I'm singing Green, green, it's green they say On the far side of the whole wide world gonna tell me how to spend my time I'm just a good loving rambling man say buddy can you spare me a dime hear me crying it's a green green it's green they say on the far side sun goes down where I lay my weary head Green, green valley or rocky road It's there I'm gonna make my bed easy now Green, green, it's green they say On the far side of the hill Green, green, I'm going away To where the grass is greener still Everybody, I wanna hear it now Green, green, it's green they say On the far side
That's going to kick things in the head for another week. We'll be back in two weeks, and we'll do it all over again. In the meantime, on behalf of Chester and myself, this is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I'm so glad you met me. Time to keep you in my 
kitchen with people. 